0: Well, let me say welcome to Summit Church this weekend. Welcome those of you watching online or listening. We're really glad you're joining us. We're in the fourth week of a five-week series in the book of James. We got one more to go, and you don't want to miss it next week. This one's a little rough today. J- James writes this little book, the book of James, and he offers up some wisdom, we said, on everyday problems, right? How to deal with your anger. Anybody got any anger out here? Yeah. I got Yeah. There's nothing wrong with having some anger, but don't sin. Our problem is we get mad and sin. Jesus said, be angry, but sin not. So, there's anger management. There's your mouth. He talks about cleaning up relational message. And one of the things I've learned in being married is there are two basic kinds of conversations. There are feeling conversations, and there are problem-solving conversations. Now, as a husband... We get this backwards sometimes. There might be a time when Cindy will be sharing uh, her concern about something going on or what was going on in her day, something she's going through, and me as a husband, I'll immediately jump into problem solving. I'll say, let's do this. Let's change that. Let's tell them this. Boom, boom, boom. I want to solve it. And sometimes she'll get frustrated and say, hey, this is a feeling conversation. If you could just kind of nod and listen and maybe just say, you hear me and that you're with me, that's all I need. I don't need you to solve anything. I'm just venting, thank you. I'm just venting a little bit and I just need to know you care and understand. So in marriage, Henry, come on. (laughs) In marriage, knowing the difference can save your life. So the text we're gonna look at this morning in James is not a feeling conversation. It's a problem solving conversation. James is interested in helping all of us solve a key problem in our lives because everybody brings into church every weekend a lot of problems you're wrestling with. Maybe for you, the struggle you're facing right now has to do with something going on in your career or at work. Maybe for you, the big problem has to do with something in a relationship or with somebody you love. Maybe for you, the problem is financial or debt-related or some kind of stress around that. Maybe for you, the problem is a struggle or a habit you can't seem to find your way through. And maybe you came to church this morning just trying to avoid your problem. I just don't want to think about it for a little while. Or maybe you came to church this weekend and your biggest problem is sitting next to you. Don't look around. So James is writing to a community that's wrestling with a lot of different issues, And we've looked at many of them so far, anger, ignoring the needs of the poor, superiority, greed, and hypocrisy. There are so many issues they, like us, are facing. So in the text we're looking at this morning, James is going to confront them about this conflict and divisions that are going on in this new church community. And he's going to use that issue to go deeper into something going on in their lives. He's going to make this claim Folks, you have a problem, a bigger problem than your current problem. No matter what's going on in your life, you actually have a bigger problem than your current problem. So let's find out what he's talking about. He starts with this question. This is in James chapter 4 in verse 1. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Why are you fighting? Why are you bickering? Now, if you know the New Testament, you know that one of the most rampant issues in the early church was conflict and divisions. There was rival factions, and they would form around, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of this guy, Peter, whoever. They, they had their little factions around different teachers or different interpretations of Scripture or different views about what it means to be a Christ follower. But in this case, because James was one of the most significant leaders in the early church in Jerusalem where he lived, he would have known what the issues were all about. He would have asked this question kind of rhetorically because he would know exactly why they were fighting and why all the divisions. He would have known all of the issues. If they were fighting about what Jesus taught or what it meant, hey, this guy's Jesus' brother. He could speak with authority on that. If they were fighting about whether Jesus was actually raised from the dead, which was a question in the early part of the church, he was an eyewitness. He could have spoken into that, but he doesn't. He doesn't say, tell me about each side of the debate. He doesn't say, who's more biblical, who's more right? In fact, he does a really interesting thing. He answers his own question with another question. He says, don't they come from your desires that battle inside of you? See, if you've ever been with somebody who answers their question with another question, you know they're making a serious point. I remember a time Cindy and I were scheduled to have dinner with friends. I'd forgotten to put it on my calendar. So we came to that day and I looked at the calendar and thought, hey, we got a free day. Let me, let me see what we can do, honey. We got a whole day to ourselves. I bought some movie tickets and we can go out to dinner. And I thought I'm earning all of these good husband points. And it turns out we had something else scheduled that day, which she reminded me of. And she asked me a question. Don't you remember? We're having dinner with friends tonight. Then she asked me a second question. Did you forget to write that down? See, with that second question, she's making a point. Now, how am I supposed to respond? Of course, I nod and say, I hear you, babe, I'm with you, but that's a feeling conversation. That This one is not. This is a problem-solving con- conversation. So she wouldn't want to hear, I hear you. she want to say, you better fix it, bud, this is a problem. So James answers his own question with a question. He's making a point. He says, yep, they really do. Your conflicts, these fights, are not just about circumstances you're facing, outside they're about something happening inside you you're not just frustrated because somebody has offended you you're not just frustrated because someone might have some bad theology there's something else going on in you that you need to look at in other words your problem isn't out there technically it's in here your heart notice James is refocusing their attention from their circumstances To what's going on in their inner life. He's basically saying, What if that current issue you're facing, that current problem in your life, what if it's not just about stuff out there? What if it's revealing something about you and your own soul? Are you willing to go there? Are you brave enough to even think? Well, gosh, that could be relevant to what I'm going through. So he says, What causes the fights among you? They come from desires inside your own heart. Now, what desires is he talking about? Well, let's look at what he says next. He says, You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. Now, by the way, scholars actually think that wasn't hyperbole or a metaphoric statement, it was actually uh, violence going on. People were so angry, they were resorting to physical violence, even murder, in the early church. <laughs> Good morning. He says, you covet, but you can't get what you want. So you quarrel, you fight, you accuse. There are these appetites we all have, unmet desires and wants that that drive our lives. And you may not know it, it's kind of controversial because in our day, the common belief is that our actions are driven by what people say and what people do around us. So that's why people say things like, you make me so angry. Or that person really brings out the worst in me or I would have never said or done what I did if they hadn't done that to me first. But James says, not so. There's something else going inside your heart, inside you that's triggering you, and you need to face it. So he's saying the reason you fight, the reason you have conflict, the reason you're in these kinds of struggles is because you've got all these desires, you envy, you covet, there are things you want, you don't have, you think you deserve, somebody else doesn't, and it runs so deeply in you, you hardly recognize it anymore. Somebody gets a new house, or they get a new car, or they get something expensive, and you criticize them because you can't have it. Now, you wouldn't say that. You, well, do you know what? I can't believe. And Who do they think they are? Who does she think she is? And Whoa that isn't telling me about her. That's telling me about you. See, that's why I told this church years ago on my birthday who gave me a sports car. I didn't buy it with church money. I don't have a Swiss bank account. I don't have 12 cars. I cannot believe what people say. And it's like, why wouldn't you rejoice with me? I've sold two of them to help this church of my own. And I'm thinking, and somebody walks out who's not even a member of the church and buys me an expensive sports car. First of all, I couldn't afford to, to buy the wheel on the dumb thing. Secondly, Cindy wouldn't approve it. And, and third, I knew I knew automatically. Okay, and it's sad, but oh, he's got that car. I can't believe a pastor would drive that car. That's because you don't have it. I guarantee if I hands you the keys, you'd drive it out of the parking lot. Can somebody tell me I'm telling the truth? As long as it's legal, not immoral, not unethical, IRS compliant, but I didn't have to, but I thought, what a shame, I have to tell you. If I get something, I gotta tell you, so you don't think anybody stole anything or stole money because of the envy people. Well, I think I deserve it more than him. Well, I'm gonna start me a church and get rich. Well, brother, have at it. Go ahead. You must be an idiot to think that good luck with that. But that's what I'm trying to get to you. It's what's inside of here. In fact, I hope you get filthy rich and I get to use all your toys. Oh, Rick, you want to borrow the condo for the week? Go ahead. Oh, I got a boat up there too. Really nice. I just got this one. You can have that too. Thank you. I don't have to pay insurance, upkeep, or docking for it. Oh, I got a new jet for our company. If you need it, let me know in advance and we'll Just pay for the gas, and we'll fly you wherever you need to go, and you won't have to line up at the airport. What are you waiting on? Let's get this show going, folks. (laughs) I rejoice with you when you prosper, when you do well, but when you see people start criticizing, their jealousy comes out, and jealousy digs the mud that envy throws at success. Don't do it. Everybody gets mad at these billionaires. Why don't you become one? I mean, these guys have more faith in the corporate world than the average church. They risk their whole life. They give all their savings. They put all their money on the table. They mortgage themselves to the hilt. They borrow from the banks on a dream and a vision that might not make it. And out of a sudden, out of a garage, of uh, uh, Bill Gates, uh, Steve Jobs, a, uh, uh, Elon Musk, or the rest of these guys, and they become billionaires, and we're going to tell them, well, I just think, and I just think, oh, shut up what you think. When did you risk everything? When did you take all your savings, go to the bank and mortgage for a dream? When did you do that? Then you can criticize. Three things people can always do better than you. Spend your money, do your job, or raise your kids. Yeah, and it comes out of sight. Don't look like you haven't done that before, or at least felt it. Say you desire, but you don't have. You covet, and it's kind of funny to see it in our children. But it's sad to think we don't ever actually grow out of it. We just get a little better at masking it, a little better at hiding it. And what begins as a desire for something that's at root in your life can quickly become this sense of, well, somebody else has something I want. Somebody else is a barrier or a threat to my personal success. See, if it's not in the center of your heart, you'll find that most people if, they, if it disappeared, they could say, let it go. That's, I made it before. I can make it again. You, what you can, ta- you can take all my personal belongings, and by the way, two thieves have taken everything I've had twice, and I thought, you can't take what I know. I still know what I know. I'm still able to do what I can do, and I can do it again, and probably do it better because I've learned better over the years. Do you even think like that? See? So James is able to see that our conflicts aren't about conflicts or theology or ideas. It's about something else going on inside of you that you want, that you think you ought to have, that you think you need, and the actions are flowing out of that part of my soul. This is why envy can be so dangerous to human relationships. We see it throughout the Bible. I I think off the top of my head a few stories Isaac envied Esau's inheritance, so he deceived his father in order to get it fraudulently. Rachel envied Leah's kids because she didn't have any of her own, so she had her husband Jacob sleep with her maid servant to produce more kids. I hadn't seen that happen lately. I'm just waiting on Cindy to farm me out. Uh, Okay, sorry. I ain't gonna. Have, I know, I know, I know. Just want to wake up this early crowd. Joseph's brothers envied his status with his father, so they kidnapped him. They threw him in a well. They sold him into slavery. See, James was aware people weren't fighting in the early church just because they wanted to have better theology. They were fighting because they craved power. They craved influence. They didn't want somebody to get what they think they should get. They wanted to be right. They wanted to be in control. They fought because their hearts were filled with envy, with desires for things they wanted, but they did not have. See, sometimes when you feel frustrated at another person, if you're honest, it's because they have something you don't. Maybe they're a little more talented than you are or more successful than you are. Yeah, which is why we have this envy issue. And James, as he, and boy, let me just say, preachers have it really bad. So if somebody has a, an extremely successful church or a bigger church, then what do they instantly do? Well, he doesn't preach on hell enough. Well, they, he's, he, he believes this, and it's not right. Where did that come from? I, I'm trying to protect my pride that I may, must be right. See, that's coming from inside of me, this criticizing somebody else. It goes on all the time. It's, it's like, well, I don't think they should be that. Well, they, they wouldn't be that big if they didn't do this, and I can't believe they believe that, and people still go there. What is that? Envy. Doesn't bother me. Why all the hatred, the vax, or unvax, or whatever, hey, I'm fine. I don't care what you do. I'm going to do what I'm going to do based on my own conscience, but I don't have to fight with you if you disagree. It's fine. But why? Why the fight? I got to be right. I got to be right. You know, 20 years after this is all over, we'll find out probably none of us were right. At least give yourself, you know, that's why I say follow your conscience, do what you want, but let's not get in a fight about it. I don't have to win the fight. If you've got to win every fight in marriage, you'll be in divorce court, okay? If you have to be right, that, that was a problem for me early. That was a real problem for me. And I, I, but you slay that dragon when, when God changes your heart. And you have a desire problem. These envies, they're in you. So James is diagnosing us. But it doesn't stop there. He goes deeper. He says, why do we have this envy problem? You don't have because you do not ask God. And when you ask God, you don't do it to receive because you ask with the wrong motive that you may spend what you get on your own pleasure. I don't know about you, but that statement basically sums up a lot of people's prayer life in one swoop. You don't have because you don't ask God. In other words, you're too busy. You don't want to involve him. You don't believe he can do it. You don't believe he will do it. So you just leave him out of it. Or when you bring God into a current situation, it's really just about you getting what you want for you. In fact, James uses this phrase that you may spend what you get on your own pleasure. It's the same kind of wording Jesus uses when he tells the story of the two sons. One goes to his dad And demands his share of the inheritance. Why? It says so he can go out and spend it all on himself. That's not a feelings conversation. That's a problem-solving conversation. And he's saying the trouble isn't just conflict, and it's not just that you've got unmet desires. The problem is your life seems to be spinning around just you. It's really just all about you. Sometimes I think we Christians can assume that because we profess belief in God and we attend church, that God must be in the right place in our lives. But what I say about God or the fact that I attend church on the weekend may have nothing to do with what's actually going on in my heart. In fact, all too often, if we're brave enough to admit it, we only love God to the degree that God gives us what we actually love. If we're brave enough to admit it, we only really want to be faithful to the degree to which God seems to be faithful to us and gives us what we want. God, if you'll help me be successful, I'll be faithful. God, if you'll give me that big raise or that big sale, I promise I'll tithe. Oh God, if you give me that relationship I'm longing for, then I'll be faithful. If you give me that security or a comfortable life or that expensive boat that Rick wants, then I'll commit to follow you. I'll stay with you then. See, I have these desires, just like you. That's not a problem, actually, just having it. You're gonna see in a moment, it's where the priority comes, okay? It's amazing what James is doing. Yeah, we have conflict, that's a problem, sure. There's envy and desires and stuff you want, that's a problem. But deeper in your life, it gravitates so much around you. He's basically saying when it comes to the problem in your life, the thing you need to check on, the thing you need to look at is this phrase, am I just in this for me? Think about what you're wrestling with. Think about the problem you brought into church today. Are you just in this for you? Then James goes a little bit deeper, cuts a little closer to the heart. He says, you adulterous people. Wow, that's pretty serious stuff. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity against God? Therefore, anybody who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, if I unpack that for a minute, for those of you who grew up in the church, you might have heard that teaching uh, like this. I grew, I grew up hearing friendship with the world means, you know, murder, t- t- taboo sins, like uh, getting drunk, uh, committing adultery, uh, hanging out with the wrong people. But I can tell you, James is not saying that in order to have your life right, you just need to avoid a few taboo sins. James is talking about what matters most in your life. And I can tell you by what you're willing to walk away from. Let me try to illustrate that. Our lives work on certain levels of concerns. At the outer level of our life is a peripheral view. The peripheral concerns in my life are day-to-day chores, things you have to get up and do every day. That's the peripheral uh, concern of my life. Then beneath that, you've got what we might call primary concerns. These are deeper. This is stuff like family, spouse, relationships, your health, your children. But beneath that, there is your central core. And at the core of every person in here, there's this simple thing that is what matters most. So what James is saying is you can only have one thing in that circle. So often for a lot of people, it's God plus something else. Oh, sure, I'll put God in that center core, but it's God and my success, or God and my future, or God and my pleasure, or God and my comfort, or God and my security. And James is saying, guess what? This whole thing about adulterous people, he's boiling that down to saying only one thing goes into what matters most in that place, and it's God or something else. So here's the thing our temptation is always, always to have something else in that circle of what matters most. And if you're honest, you know, it could be relational fulfillment. Maybe for you, what matters most is vocational success or your career, or maybe for you, what matters most is how you're seen in the eyes of other people, or it may be your financial success. Uh, Maybe for you, what matters most is a sense of comfort and security and your life is gonna be okay. Now those are not bad concerns. They're primary level concerns. But when they become what you treasure, then they become what matters most in your life. Now God calls that idolatry. Okay, so I want a boat. Yeah, I'd like to have that boat. I might look at them, kick it around, learn a lot about them. Me and a couple of friends uh, do. It's out of my reach. But I can tell you this, that sucker is not at the center of my heart. I can walk away from that boat in a second. In fact, it's easier right now because I don't even have it. <laughs> might never have it. So am I going to lose sleep over it? Am I going to be cranky, hardly? No, it's not the center. It's peripheral, not the core of me. And if something is offered to me that might be financial reward or might be career advancement, but it's unethical or perhaps violates something that God's real clear on. If he's at the core, if he occupies that, I'll walk away from it. Even if it's personal, I'll walk away from it. Why? Because he's actually at the center of my life. I, I, I could give you illustration after illustration where I had to forego personal gain because I couldn't do it. I just felt it was unethical and I'm not, I'm not a moralist, uh, extremist anyway. It was just out of bounds. And I said, I could even get away with that, but I, God wouldn't let me get away with that. And since he's at the center, I'm going to have to say no. So I don't find that hard when, when he occupies that place. But when another mistress moves into that circle with God, now I get an idol. Idols are not little gold statues people bow down before and worship. Idols are anything you put in the center of your life that's a substitute for God. It's something you trust to do what only God can do. And and you would say that this matters most to me. It's my whole life. You see, beneath the conflict, beneath the envy, beneath the motivation for self-gratification, beneath all that stuff, the problem James is identifying is that God probably is not at the center of your life. Now, you might think he is, because, hey, I go to church, and I try to do good stuff, and I sure hope my life works out with God and my stuff. But when he comes down to it, God's not what matters most. You're not willing to trust him with what matters most. So this isn't a feelings conversation. It's a problem-solving conversation, and this is a significant problem. When we live this way, when this happens, all of life gets a bit disoriented, and as James says, we either don't pray, we don't involve God, or when we do, it's only about ourself and what I want and my desire. And it results in all sorts of aberrant behavior, like conflict and fighting and envy and that kind of stuff. So, so think about it. If James was simply interested in resolving a few conflicts, he could have said, hey, here are a few conflict management tips. Here are a few strategies for that but he doesn't. He just goes deeper and deeper and cuts closer to the core of who we are. He gets more and more offensive to our way of thinking about life. And he's saying there's something else at the center. So the question, what is at the center of your life? What are you willing to walk away from? If you're not willing to walk away and you don't know until you start, I couldn't lose that no matter what, <laughs> well, then, then you have a problem. If you had to answer the question, what matters most to you? When you're honest about it, there are a lot of things that come before God with so many. Your future, that really does matter. My success, that matters. How people see me. When you look at how you behave, not just what you say or what you want to believe, you realize oftentimes God's not really at the center of where he needs to be. Do you know what's even worse? We don't even know how to fix it. I don't know how to do that on my own. If I am my own biggest problem, and I am, how can I go and fix this on my own? If I'm just in it for me, how am I gonna be able to change that on my own? So what James is getting at, as he drives to the core of our biggest problem, is that we can't resolve our biggest problem on our own. We, we don't have just a conflict or fighting problems. We got a heart problem, a soul problem. What does Proverbs say? Proverbs 4, out of the heart are the issues of life. I need a heart transplant. I need God to fix my heart. That will eradicate racism, bigotry, jealousy, envy, strife, conflict. Yeah, it will. Take it away. Get that heart right. And this is an ongoing process, right? See, you have desires you can't control, and you need self-gratification you can't let go of. And all that boils down to that sense of me at the center of what the Bible calls sin. That word sin gets misunderstood. It's not just about misbehavior or immorality. Sin is basically refusing to believe I am my own biggest problem. Listen to how the apostle Paul wrote about his life. And this is the most significant leader in the early church. Listen to what he said. Romans 7 verse 21. So I find this law at work in me, Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin that is at work within me. This is all going on inside of him, one of the greatest leaders in the early church. Wow. And then he says this, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who can solve your biggest problem? Paul says, thanks be to God. Amazing. At this low moment, I'm wretched. Who can rescue me? I can't even solve my biggest problem. And then Paul bursts into gratitude. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, my Lord. So you have a problem beneath that problem, a significant problem that biggest problem you can't solve. It's called sin, and it screws up our heart. So it's a life that is focused purely around yourself. Who can solve it? I can't. Jesus can't. Jesus can solve my biggest problems, and I love how James puts it. He has basically given all this weighty scripture, this sense of being an adulterous people. We're at odds with God, and then what does he say next? But he, God, gives us more grace. Wow, I need that. You need that. And then he cites Proverbs 3, verse 34. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's a big deal. We've got conflict. We've got envy. Then motivation by self. And then beneath that, we're kind of living at odds with God because we don't trust him with what matters most. All that has been said, and then what does God do? He gives you grace. Grace, the power of God to do what you can't do for yourself. Grace, another chance after a long list of second chances. Grace, forgiveness and freedom from shame and guilt that you can't escape on your own. This is why Jesus came. You're not sure who Jesus is or what he's all about? This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus died, to offer grace for anybody who would receive it. If you're an atheist, there's grace for you. If you're a skeptic, there's grace for you. If you're an absentee parent with your kids, there's grace for you. If you've hurt someone, there's grace for you. If you've been unfaithful in your marriage, there's grace for you. If your whole life has been all about you, guess what? There's grace for you. This is not a feelings conversation. It's a problem-solving conversation. Do you know what the biggest problem with us is when it comes to grace? How to receive it, knowing how to receive it. See, do you really know how to receive this grace? James is making it clear there's only one way, one posture, one place to receive it. You have to humble yourself. He cites that Old Testament text that God opposes the proud, that he stands against those who would say, I can do it on my own. I'm fine all by myself. But he shows grace and favor to the humble, to the broken, to those who know their life is a total mess and they can't fix it on their own, to those who know I'm my biggest problem and there's nothing, humanly speaking, I can do about it. Well, guess what? You then are primed for grace. If you humble yourself, if you let go of that pride, that need to pretend, that worry about what others think, just let God meet you there. It's the hardest thing for some people to do. It doesn't sound like it would be, but apparently it is. But it's the hardest thing to do to really receive grace God offers. How do we do it? All right, before I close, let me give you this quick story, true story. A friend of mine told me about a guy who's brilliant, but who was a committed atheist. And he was convinced that Christians were naive and unthinking, which in large measure does occur, okay? To be honest, He never thought this guy would ever have a change of heart. He was so smart. He was so competent. He was so sure of himself, like some of you right now are watching online, that they decided to attend a church event together. And at the end, the speaker said, if anyone wants to receive grace, you can receive it now. And he's thinking to himself, there ain't no way he's going to do that. He's so smart. And I've said all this to him before. And that wasn't even a very good sermon. There's no way he's gonna do this right now, just no way. But then the guy got out of his chair and amazingly enough, he got down on his knees and he said, God, I don't know that I believe in you. I don't know if you're there. I know we're not friends, but this grace thing sounds awfully good to me. And I think you can hear me from down here. You see, there's only one way to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. It's not by trying harder. It's not by trying to be really, really moral. It's not by going to church or doing religious activities. It's this. It's right here, just like this guy. I'll just mimic it. I kneel down. It's showing myself broken, fragile, needy, self-absorbed, me-centrific, and maybe saying, God... I need grace. Remember the publican? He walked out after all the Pharisees bragged on what they didn't do and what they did do. And all he did is he bowed his head, smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that guy went home saved, justified. Let me tell you, God can hear you from down here. If you don't think he's listening or you don't think he's heard your prayers, he can hear you from down here. Down here is a representation of humility. There's grace down here. There's redemption down here. There's life down here. And I wanna invite you to have a different kind of conversation with our great God this week. Just close your eyes for a moment if you would. And this is just between you and God. And don't worry about who's on your right or who's on your left. We all need grace. We come to church, we sit, we listen, we go home, And maybe right now, you might just put your head down to reflect where your soul is, a place of humility. It's not an actual position, of course. Uh, It it could be in a car. It could be in your home. it, It could be any place or just bowing your head in a quiet moment to humble yourself. And I tell you, God can hear you from this place. In fact, we know Jesus left the heights of heaven to come down to the depths of earth. So he's actually down here waiting for you. There's grace down here. There's mercy down here. There's hope down here. He didn't come to meet you this weekend just to solve whatever problem you brought into church. He came to solve the biggest problem in your life, which is you, one you can't solve on your own, one that without his help leaves you desperately broken. But in an act of humility, on your knees, there's grace. And I promise you this, the one prayer Jesus always, always answers is the desperate cry for grace and mercy. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit SummitSA.com.